Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. So Revelation, let's begin this journey. I'll tell you what, when you begin to look at the book of Revelation, uh, there's so much into this. I'm going to take some time today just to walk us through kind of an introduction. I'm going to give you some 30,000 foot view stuff and uh, we're going to kind of focus in on the fact that the Lord is coming. And I want to share with you some basic parameters, if I could put it that way, concerning this study. Next week, uh, and then we have Richard Ross, and then the following week, I'm going to do kind of an overview of the churches. I'm not going to get ingrained into those because I did those just a few years ago. And I'm going to give kind of a 30,000-foot view of the churches, talk about healthy church Talk about what does a church look like when a church is healthy doctrinally and in their activity and how we're all functioning together in unity as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ and keep him as our focus and, and obviously as our first love. And then we're going to dive into chapter 4 and we're really going to get into uh, the heartbeat of so much of what Revelation's all about, which is the prophetic events that are to come. I believe, and I said this already, but I'll say it again, we are in the end times, and I think we're at the end of the end. I think that clock is about to hit. I think that clock is about to strike, where the father tells the son, go get my children. And I think the question is, are we ready for that? How are we living day by day, moment by moment, yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ, to where if he were to return right at this moment, we'd be ready to see him face to face with joy? Not with shame, but with joy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and following deal with the fact that in the end times there will be people who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness and yet they deny its power. We see that throughout our country, throughout this world in many different ways. Paul thought that the Lord would return during his day and so how much more ought we be ready for the return of Christ. We're in the end of the end of the end times. I want you to know this. I, I'm, I guarantee you I'm not going to cover every view of uh, Revelation. I'm not even going to try. I think it would be a distraction. Um, there's so many different views, the preterist view, the futurist view. The, I mean, there, there's just so many different things. We would spend all our time looking at these different views and comparing and analyzing and walking through. I'm just going to tell you what I believe, okay? And I'm going to do it from the Word of God, and I'm going to do the best that I know how to be uh, absolutely according to what God's Word says because you, you don't want what Eric thinks. What you want is what the Word of God has to say. And so I'm going to do my best with that. And you can pray for me in that because i got to tell you something. It is a challenge. Some of these things are um, remarkable. They've been debated about for years and years and years. I want you to know that I have a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual view of Scripture. Right? When, when there's a simple explanation in terms of the normative view of what a word means or a, a normative view of, of what a passage is indicating, we're going to take that normative view. We're not going to allegorize things. We're not going to turn it into something spiritually that it wasn't intended to say. Revelation is an amazing book. But it has been twisted like a pretzel by many, many people. And it's been confusing as a result of that. And we're going to do my best. I'll do my best. 
in order to make sure that we go through and just focus on the main things. And if there are uh, differences of opinion, then we'll give grace to one another in the midst of it. Revelation's a book of prophecy. The events in Revelation have not yet occurred, folks. They are future. I'm not talking about chapters 1 through 3. I'm talking about chapters 4 and following. Haven't yet occurred. They're future. They're prophetic. The canon of Scripture is complete. What God has said, he has said, and it's closed. Genesis through Revelation, the canon is complete. But due to the prophetic aspect of these issues, not only in Revelation, but in Daniel, and in Zechariah, and Isaiah, and in the Psalms, and all these different passages, the Olivet Discourse, and Matthew, there is a progressive revelation of the meaning behind some of these things. We'll have a better understanding of what Scripture means when events actually take place. We'll be able to look back and go, oh, boy, did we mess that one up. Or, oh, we got that right. But progressively, what's been said has been said. It's complete. But what it means and how it plays out in human history is unique. And so we'll have a better picture of that when it happens Great example of this is Israel once again becoming a nation after World War II. Many people did not believe that was going to be the case. In fact, they were saying we're already in the millennium. But when Israel became a nation again, all of a sudden there were prophecies that were being fulfilled out of the Old Testament that people had to take a step back and go, whoop, wait a second, we better rewrite this book. Another great example of this is Gog and Magog. Right? And we'll get into that probably next year sometime. <laughs> I'm teasing. It won't be that long. <laughs> but Gog and Magog. What is Gog and Magog? It comes at the end of the millennium. It comes at the beginning of the millennium. What does Ezekiel 38 mean? Is this a different war than what is presented at the end of the millennium? And when exactly does it take place? Does it take place before the rapture? Does it take place after the rapture? Does it take place during the first three and a half years of the great tribulation? What are we talking about when we talk about Gog and Magog? Look, there's differences of thought on this. And I got to tell you, when we get to the point when Gog and Magog takes place, everybody will go, ah, got it. It's being revealed. We have it in the Word of God, and we're doing our best in order to understand it. And we want to make sure that we're grammatically correct, we're historically correct. We, we take the linguistics, we take the context, and we're as accurate to hermeneutics and handling the Word of God in a right way as possible. But boy, there better be grace in some of this. Because if anybody can say dogmatically that they absolutely understand everything about Revelation, friend. <laughs> Spiro Zodiades looked at me one time, and after 40 years of studying the Word, and literally he got up every, every morning, and I mean every morning at 4 o'clock, and wrote and studied for eight hours solid. Every morning. He looked at me and he said, I don't understand Revelation. So if you're telling me you do, <laughs> you better come with guns blazing, right? You better, you better have some real, real good stuff. All I'm saying is, let's give grace to one another. Many of you have studied, listened to sermons or teachings on the book of Revelation. You've come to certain conclusions. You've heard of Walvert. We've got our Walvertites 
right? You've heard of Chuck Missler. We've got our Misslerites. You've heard, maybe not, but some of you have, Fruchtenbaum. We've got our Fruchtenbaumites. Say that 10 times. We've got our Rosenthalites. We've got our Reformites. We've got our Dallasites. We even have our Ericites. Because some of you will listen to what I'm saying and say, well, Eric said. And I want to just take a step back off of that because I don't even deserve to be on that list. But here's what I want to encourage you in. It's not what Eric says. It's not what Fruchtenbaum says. It's not what Walvert says. It's not what Rosenthal says. It's not what Dallas Seminary teaches. It's not what Reformed theology wants to present. None, none of that matters. What matters is what does the Word of God say? And my prayer is that for each and every one of us here, that we don't leave every week throughout this study saying, oh, well, Eric said this or so-and-so said that. We leave going, wow, what a great God. Look at what the Word of God has to say. I didn't know that. And even if we don't fully understand it, we'll agree that we don't fully understand it. And we'll leave it to the sovereignty of God because God is in control and God knows exactly what he wants to do, how he's going to do it. And we can take absolute heart and courage in the fact that the Lord is totally in charge and in control of human history. Amen? That's the issue, folks. Let's focus on that. Amen. <laughs> Ericites, come on. <laughs> I'm going to do my best to give information to you, but not bury you with it. Now, I want to tell you something. <laughs> my desk right now is pretty much of a mess. My chair at home, there's a, oh, I don't know what you call it, kind of like one of these things with drawers, shelves. It's a cupboard type thing sitting next to my chair at home. It's got all these books over it. It's driving Stephanie crazy, you know. She's like, good grief. There, there's so much about these issues that have been written that it's incredible. I'll probably use as my source material, as my go-to type of stuff, uh, Walvoord and, and then Fruchtenbaum. Fruchtenbaum's amazing. If you've never had an opportunity to read Footsteps of the Messiah by Arnold Fruchtenbaum, I would, I would encourage you to grab it. Uh, he does such a good job. He's so thorough. I'm thankful for George Meisinger who put me on to him several years ago. And I had never heard of him in my life. And, and I'm just blessed reading what he has to say. And the way he handles scripture, the systematic approach, the consistency. And I'm thankful for that. So if you want to be able to look at those kind of things and kind of understand uh, some of the clarifying factors here, those are the people that I'll end up probably sourcing the most. Let me give you a broad overview of my, my view, okay? Um, I believe that the Bible teaches that the rapture is pre-tribulation. And when I say tribulation, I'm talking about the great tribulation or the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year period of time that we look forward to uh, that hasn't yet happened. I believe it's before that. Okay, I believe that it's a signless event. There's nothing that needs to take place for the rapture to happen immediately. And I got to tell you something, that was convicting to me because for years I did not believe that. I didn't say that I didn't believe it. I just really didn't have that expectancy. I didn't really actually think that way or live that out because I was confusing the signs that need to take place for the great tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year period of time called the tribulation, for that moment to begin. There are signs that have to take place for that to begin. 
But for the rapture, there are no signs that need to take place. And folks, if that doesn't convict you, if you don't hear anything else this morning, then please understand that I believe that literally the Lord Jesus Christ could come back today. He could come back any moment at all whatsoever. And I think we as the people comfort one another with these words. We recognize that if we're caught up with the Lord and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who remain will be caught up together with him. That's speaking of the rapture. He says comfort one another uh, with these words that we will always from that point on be together with the Lord. Praise God for that. Amen. What a beautiful hope. What a beautiful truth. I believe that the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week or the great tribulation is prior to, it's pre-millennium. Now, there are some people that believe we're in the millennium, and I'd like to know what millennium they're talking about. (laughs) You know, I don't see the lion laying down with the lamb. Do you? Poor lamb. That would be horrible. (laughs) That hasn't happened yet. I don't see where there's a cessation of war, where somehow people are taking their swords and turning them into plowshares and using them for farming instruments. I don't see that. I believe clearly we're in the millennium. I think that's in some ways, forgive me if you don't agree with me, but I think that's a no-brainer. So the tribulation is prior to the millennium. I believe that the millennium is actual. It's not allegorical. It's not just a spiritualizing of something. It didn't begin with Pentecost and somehow the church age is the millennium. I believe it's an actual ruling and reigning of Christ Jesus from Jerusalem over this earth. And we are going to be his servants and we're going to help. And to the level that we walk with God in the midst of this day in our lifetime as we say yes to him and yield to him and as he transforms us, that will be the level of responsibility and service that we have in the kingdom. I believe the tribulation or the great tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, is for Israel and the dealing with unbelief or sin. It is not for the church. And I believe that scripture teaches this. Daniel 9.24 says this, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. And then he gives five things, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. The messenger gave Daniel a very specific message about the purpose of the tribulation. And it is for Israel, and it is also for putting down the end of unbelief in that sense. The Lord Jesus Christ, we celebrated a couple weeks ago, coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. What we're talking about here in Revelation is he's coming back on a horse, and he's coming for judgment. He's coming for judgment. Let me give you five things to, to note as we begin this study. Daniel is clearly key in understanding much of the prophecy in Revelation. And uh, I'll, I'll refer to Daniel often where needed, along with other Old Testament passages as well as New Testament passages like Matthew 24, uh, the Olivet Discourse. Those are key in understanding parts of Revelation and certain time factors and timelines and things that are being discussed and brought forward. One of the things that's brought out in, in Daniel 
are the empires. And I didn't go into all the detail of this, but just to give you a picture of this, I think we have this for the screen. Uh, This statue is given. The golden head is Babylon. We've seen this, right? In 626 B.C. or the silver breast and arms, the Medes and the Persians in 539 B.C. or the bronze belly and the thighs, Greece, 330 B.C. The iron legs, Rome, 63 B.C. and following. And then the iron mixed with clay feet and toes, toes reconstituted Roman Empire. It's to come and or forming, if you want to think of it that way. I'll tell you what, folks, this Brexit vote and what's happening in France even today is fascinating when we talk about these things. But there's a kingdom that's an eternal kingdom. There's a stone that came and smashed this idol. And it is an eternal kingdom. It's God's kingdom. And thank the Lord for it. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're a part of that kingdom. His kingdom is within us being revealed through us, and one day it's going to be actualized in its fullness when he comes to rule and reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem. So in Daniel chapter 2 and following all these different ways of putting this, we have these empires given, and the story of Daniel in so, much, so many ways is God's sovereignty over human history. What a beautiful hope. What a beautiful truth that is, folks. When we look at Iran and North Korea and Syria, we look at what's going on in the Middle East, we look at what Russia is doing, China. As believers, we don't have to fear. We look up, we take note, and we recognize that God has human history in his hand. There's nothing that catches them off guard. We don't need to fear. Some of the most fearful people I've been around are Christians. Honest truth. Y2K. Indescribable. I was down in Florida at the time. I have never seen believers so distraught. Folks, we don't have to fear. We don't have to worry. We know our Lord is sovereign and in control. And we can trust him. We can walk with him. Because moment by moment, day by day, he's in control of human history. Let me give you a basic timeline of events. Using the 70 weeks of Daniel, decreed for Israel, obviously given in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and following. The first seven weeks, and these are years, so it's 49 years, and I'm not going to do all the math for you because I'll screw it up, but (laughs) the first seven weeks begin with a decree to rebuild Jerusalem in Daniel 9.25. It was by Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. So there's a proclamation, and as soon as that proclamation took place, a clock began, right? A clock began, and it was decreed that there would be 70 weeks 490 years for Israel. The first seven years take place simultaneously. The next 62 weeks take place, ending with Messiah entering into Jerusalem. So this period of time of 69 weeks takes place. What is that, 483 years, right? Takes place to the absolute moment of Messiah coming in to Jerusalem to declare that he is the Messiah of Israel, and they reject him. 
The Messiah, as it was prophesied in Daniel 9, is cut off. He's killed. And at that moment, there is a suspension of the weeks. And this becomes the church age, which we are in at this particular moment in time. I think the church age is depicted, and we're going to look at this over the next few weeks, through these different churches. Not only a message specifically to the church of Ephesus or Smyrna, Pergamum, etc., but also to all the churches concerning what is said to these specific churches. But I also believe it gives a timeline for church history. And church history began at Pentecost, and it ends at the rapture. That's church history. It's an amazing moment. Daniel did not see it. People were caught off guard about it. They were given prophecies concerning the millennium. They were given mountaintop peak moments, but they didn't see what was going on in the valley. And as a result, the church age is taking place. And Paul talks about, uh, talks about this in Ephesians and elsewhere. The Messiah is cut off. The final week is after the church age. And I believe it begins at the signing of the covenant with the Antichrist. That's unequivocal. In other words, the 70th week of Daniel or the seven-year period of time we call the Great Tribulation or the Tribulation begins at the very moment where there is a covenant signed with Israel by the Antichrist. Now, we'll get into this later, but the rapture takes place, I believe, before that signing of the covenant, and we're not given a specific amount of time in between the rapture and the signing of the covenant. That, folks, was news to me. I had never been taught that before. Have you? That was an interesting one. I've always thought that the rapture is what, in effect, began or certainly immediately preceded the 70th week of Daniel. And I think there's real scriptural evidence for this, and we're going to get into that over the next weeks in terms of the rapture and the timing of it. One of the interesting things to me about Revelation is everybody talks about the timing of things. That becomes the all-consuming focus. When does the seventh trumpet actually take place? (laughs) Oh, wait till we get there. It's fun. But the reality of it is the all-consuming focus ought to be on the fact that Christ is in control and in charge and that he's coming back and he's taking us with him and that these series of events are going to take place and we are going to watch God begin to bring judgment onto this world. He's the just one. He's in control and he's sovereign. That 70th week period of time, that seven-year period of time is for Israel And it has been decreed, not only for Israel and the bringing back of Israel to the Lord himself, but also for the end of sin, the end of unbelief on this world. A little bit of a historical background. It was written, the book of Revelation, by the apostle John during his exile while on the island of Patmos. He was in exile there, and the Lord appeared to him. And you can see that in chapter 1 of Revelation, where he falls at at the feet of the Lord as a dead man. Because the Lord appears to him uh, in his glory. It's an amazing moment. John, who had spent so much time with him, John, who had placed his head right on uh, the chest of the Lord, was very close to the Lord, was called the one whom Jesus loved, was beloved of Christ, turns and hears this voice and turns and sees the Lord, falls at his feet like a dead man. It's amazing. And the Lord gives this prophecy while John is in exile on the island of Patmos, probably approximately at the time of 90 AD, sometime in that period of time, during the reign of Domitian. 
So there's wicked stuff going on, all kinds of persecution happening to Christians. And during this time, the Lord brings an encouraging word to believers. Hang on. I'm in control. I, <laughs> the empires of this world are in my hands, and my kingdom will prevail. The name Revelation, right, the word itself is apocalypse. That's the Greek word for it. And it means not the end of all things, disaster. <laughs> we usually use the word apocalypse or apocalyptic as being disaster. Everything's gone. Everything's done. What it means is uncovering, unveiling, to reveal, to make manifest. Now, what, what's being revealed? What's being made manifest? I want to tell you, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's being revealed in a way that he hasn't until this point to this earth. He is the supreme ruler. He is, as Revelation says, the Lord God Almighty. He is the Pantocross. He is the one who holds all things in his hands. <laughs> I love that picture, don't you? The basic outline of Revelation is found in Revelation 1.19. He says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. Revelation 1 deals with the things which you have seen. Revelation 2 through 3 deals with the things which are, meaning the messages to the churches at that particular point in time. And then what we're going to focus on is Revelation chapter, uh, chapters 4 through 22, the things which will take place after these things. So that's the basic outline of it. This, this tremendous prophetic scriptural book that deals with the things that are going to take place. So why do we study Revelation? Why do we study it? Why should we study it? Why ought we study it? Well, first of all, folks, it's scripture. We may have a difficult time understanding it, but I want to tell you something. It is the Word of God. It is in the canon of Scripture. It is God's Word, and we ought to be diligent to examine it, to study it. This is the only book in the canon that comes with a promise for the hearer and the heeder, the doer. Of this book. Revelation 1 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is what? Far away? Near. My goodness, if this were if this was written in 90 AD, how much nearer are we today? It's near. It's close by. Are we ready? I love the word blessed. Blessed. You know, Ephesians 1.3 talks about being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ. In Christ. Christ lives in me. He is the blesser. Therefore, I've been given and received in Christ all the blessings in the heavenly places. That's amazing. My identity is in Christ. And therefore, I'm blessed because he lives in me and he's the blesser. So what does he mean here? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. 
Right? Back then, they didn't have scripture like we do. They certainly didn't have iPhones. Those of you who have anything other than an iPhone, I feel for you. So you can whip out your iPhone, and you can look up a faith Bible study, or you can look up an app, and you can immediately turn to the Word of God. You've got the full, complete canon of Scripture at your disposal, and so many uh, studies for uh, biblical effort and all the things that you do in terms of studying the Word of God that it's remarkable. They didn't have that. So what they had is a letter. Somebody would stand up front and read it to the people. Blessed is the, re- is the one who reads it and the one who hears the words of the prophecy. The word hear means to listen with understanding, to listen with the intent to obey. It's not just the one who's reading it. It's the one who's listening with the understanding that this is sovereignly in control because it's from the Lord over my life. And as a result, I'm listening with the understanding that I desire to heed. I desire to actually do what it is that I'm hearing, to place myself under the authority of what I'm hearing. And that's exactly what he goes on to say. Not only the one who hears the words, but also who heeds the things which are written in it. That word heed means to keep one's eye upon, to be vigilant, to obey, or to heed. It literally can mean to guard. So you're listening with the intent to place yourself under the authority and you're guarding, you're watching over what is being communicated to make sure that you're not caught off guard, that you understand that God is in control, that you don't lose hope even if you go through persecution, that you don't fall by the wayside and become discouraged and take your eyes off the Lord who's the Pantocrast, who's the one who holds all things in his hand. Blessed, blessed. That word blessed is makarios. It means filled to all the fullness with God. You see it in the Beatitudes. You see it used through all scripture. Paul says of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is the blessed one. Fully satisfied with God in and of himself. When we come before the Lord and we recognize that he's absolutely in control, that he's in sovereign, he's absolutely sovereign over all the empires, over all of human history, over our lives, that he's at work for our benefit, that every circumstance, every situation has been filtered through his hands. He didn't necessarily create it, but he certainly allowed it, and he did so for our good. When we live that way, Our eyes are not on circumstances. Our eyes are not on the things of this world. Our eyes are on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we experience the blesser. We experience that which God is, and we are blessed, filled to all the fullness of God. We walk with hope. We walk in his love. We walk in his strength. We walk in his wisdom. Blessed are those who read, who listen to, hear, but also heed, guard, watch over, obey, are vigilant about the words of this prophecy. Well, this is a prophetic book. And Revelation 119 makes that clear. The things which are to come, the things which are to be, indicating they haven't happened yet. Why? Why is this so important? Well, it's an encouragement. It's a hope for believers. It's a hope. You know what I see in people when I'm at the restaurant or where I'm at the store? When I'm out and about? 
You know what I see in people? A desperate need and desire for hope, for some kind of explanation that goes beyond the tripe that's offered to us on the news all the time. That's what I see in people. And folks, we have that hope. We have that knowledge because of the word of God, because of Christ in us. The question is, are we walking in it? This is a prophetic book. This is something that is to take place. It is a warning, yes, but it is also an encouragement to believers that God is in control. I would suggest to you, thirdly, that we are to be ready for the return of the Lord. We are to live according to his word and will daily and not just passively. You know, one of the amazing things is how people can twist grace into something that's passive. What? Passive. The Apostle Paul was anything but passive. When we see people engaged with the Lord by his grace, we see people being transformed in a way that there is activity within their life that lines up with who the Lord is. And it is not uh, like, you know, the duck, right? You ever seen ducks on the water? And they look all calm and serene, right? They walk into church and they're all good. And, but man, underneath the water, it's like, man, they're, they're churning for all they're worth. And all of a sudden you get to know this little duck and you go, what are you doing? You sure are striving a lot. You're sure paddling hard to get nowhere, right? See, when we walk with the Lord and we walk in his grace, God begins to transform us and we walk at his pace, his pace. We don't have to panic. We don't have to rush. Oh, I hate that one. Right? Anybody else rush around a lot? Yeah. All I got to do is get behind you, and you'll find out that I rush on the roads. <laughs> Jonathan said to me the other day, he said, if this church only knew what it was like to drive with you, he said they probably wouldn't come to listen to you anymore. I said, well, if I knew everybody in this church and everything that they were like, I probably wouldn't come to preach. <laughs> Amen, right? We're all normal till we get to know us. I mean, come on. We all got our moments. But folks, understand that this is an encouragement, that we are to be ready for the return of the Lord, that there's a sense of urgency in this, but we're not talking about panic. We're not talking about being rushed. We're talking about following the Lord and walking with him. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verses 13 through 18. There's many verses on this. Romans 13, 11 through 14. You can go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 6. But let me just read to you chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 of 1 Thessalonians. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who are believers who have already gone on to be with the Lord, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, 
comfort one another with these words. Wow. Folks, as we enter into this study of Revelation, are we comforting one another with the reality of the truth that one day we're going to see Jesus face to face? It could happen at any moment. Are we comforting one another with the reality that God is absolutely in control of human history? That which is behind us, that which is in front of us. He's absolutely in control of it. And how are we walking with the Lord day by day with a sense of urgency? Because we know the Lord is coming back very, very soon. How are we walking with him? Are we ready to see him face to face? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. 